The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein from New York City, and uh, we have a special episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology for you today. We are going to be discussing a topic that we have uh, sort of talked about on a marginal sense, uh, but one that is becoming increasingly important in the uh, methods of uh, and applications of archaeology over the past decade and probably much longer. It just seems to have gained a tremendous amount of steam uh, with the advent of high technology information systems as well as methodologies for remote sensing. And the topic here is geophysics. Uh, geophysics has become, if not an alternative, certainly a major supplementary investigative route for finding archaeological sites and when finding them, actually delineating them to a very large degree depending on surface and subsurface features on the ground and underneath the ground. Uh, geophysics will only continue to become more important in archaeological exploration and will also in the near future become a very widespread alternative to full-scale excavation, which, which while not a thing of the past yet, and I don't think it'll ever be, will certainly fade to some degree because of the degree to and the accuracy to which geophysics can be indexed to archaeological exploration, discovery, and even data recovery. My guest today is Dr. Robert Stewart, who is a uh, professor at and uh, actually the uh, division lead in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Houston, a position he has held since 2008. He currently holds the uh, Cullen Chair in Exploration Geophysics at the University of Houston and is its director of the Allied Geophysical Lab. His career has included stints with Chevron, 
Arco and Veritas Software, where he has worked as a processing geophysicist and senior research geophysicist. He co-founded the CREWES project, a university industry research consortium. He served as a president of the Canadian SEG, was awarded the CSEG medal, served and is a lifetime member of that organization. His professional interests include all things, and I quote here, all things related to multi-component seismic exploration, geoarchaeology, and planetary geophysics. He was recently inducted into the Explorers Club of New York. And it is my pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Robert Stewart to the program. Thank you for appearing with us. Oh, delighted to be able to visit with you. Well, what the, the, the element of your background that is most striking here is how incredibly eclectic you are, and we're going to get into that a little bit down the road here. But what is fascinating to me is how a very applied venue, and I'm looking at uh, both your experience in oil and gas exploration as well as software development, how, how that ties into geoarchaeology and archaeology in general. Can you sort of, in a, a very brief time, uh, give us a little bit of background how your uh, eclectic uh, training and how you have sort of parlayed your formal training into an archaeological format? Well, I think as a, a geophysicist, we just love making pictures of what's underneath the surface. <clears throat> and so our job is to uncover interesting our understandings in the subsurface. And uh, the geophysical methods are great for a whole variety of non-destructive and non-invasive uses. And I think that's one of the real keys for applying this to archaeology. Uh, you, you certainly don't want to disturb what's down there very much, but we need an accurate picture of it. So that's really where geophysics comes in. My background, uh, loving math and physics as well as history and, uh, and the outdoors, melds nicely into geophysics, and then that has a really useful application in, in forensics and archaeology. And, and we're sort of the radiologists of the geophysical world, or the, the photographers at the wedding. <laughs> I think that's a very good way to put it, and I, I guess my real interest here is how did you actually make the transition? I mean, did you train yourself, let's say, and I'm just guessing here, uh, pursuing a career in, in geology or oil and gas exploration, and then say, um, you know what, this is, I'm really interested in archaeology as a sidelight, maybe I'll parlay that into archaeology, or was it a little different than that? Yeah, I think it came from a number of um, areas. The employment, of course, is largely with the resource industry, and a lot of the technologies are developed there. So uh, on the other hand, I, I think we can't help but be fascinated by Egypt and Greece and, and native burials and, and all kinds of things. So uh, my background was math and physics and sound and music, so making waves of any kind. But... Um, the application comes from really chatting with archaeologists, and in fact, it was the archaeologists and the um, and the security services who really approached us and said, "Can you help us out here? <laughs> We've got to survey large areas and find what's down there, and we uh, we need help in scanning and reconnaissance techniques." So the archaeologists really came to us and 
our first big project was down in Belize, <clears throat> excuse me, where, um, of course, there are many, many, many structures, hundreds of uh, ruins in Belize that are now jungle um, encrusted or, or overgrown, and it's a massive archaeological problem. How do you survey these areas and um, really not spend time in structures that are not that unusual, and how do you find structures that really are unusual? <laughs> so that was one of our first uh, larger entries into the archaeological world with geophysical techniques. Uh, let me back up and, and discuss that a little bit further. You said archaeologists in the security services? What? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not clear on that. Well, the, the forensic folks, uh, we were involved in a couple of cases, um, <clears throat> you know, kind of untoward activities, and uh, in two of the cases, it was uh, really the police services who asked us to help them find uh, potential buried weapons in one case, and then straight criminal burials in the other case. And, and so they were, approached us to see if we could help them in, in reconnoitering and scanning areas and see if we could find, as you know, uh, buried weapon is an important part of the case. And, of course, finding the burial itself, uh, if it's a, a human burial, is an important part of the case, too. So we were really approached by the, uh, some of the agencies to help them out. Ah, so you were, you were working for the government, for the government, correct? Well, police services and and uh, investigative services, yeah. Now, were you engaged <clears throat> in uh, other activities at the time? Were you doing some exploration, uh, oil and gas exploration? I mean, how did they uh, how did they make uh, that connection? Well, we uh, <clears throat> we have lots of different toys and techniques to find out what's in the subsurface. So we were doing. Um, I was a professor, and uh, we were doing lots of services and imaging for the oil and gas industry. <clears throat> but, um, but a lot of the technologies, ground-penetrating radar and magnetometry and microgravity, um, are really appropriate for shallow imaging. And so the, uh, the services, for example, in the one case, uh, the, uh, the suspect was still at large, but it had been a multiple murder and uh, a shooting. And he was thought to have disposed of some of the weapons in large agricultural fields. <clears throat> so with security, we went down and started surveying the fields. And it was a, a pretty um, nerve-wracking time for us. Of course, we had the bright orange vests on with all of our equipment surrounded by armed personnel. <laughs> but we were pretty obvious, and the shooter was still at large. So we uh, surveyed the fields. And I can say that we found remarkable archaeological implements for the last 200 years. We didn't find a weapon, but we found lots that was interesting for the, uh, for the farmers. So this is sort of a CSI kind of archaeo com combination here, which is kind of fascinating in and of itself. It really did was, you, yeah. Did, did you find what you ultimately were looking for? Well, in that case, no, we didn't. We found lots of farm <laughs> implements. And so, so the magnetometers and the radar really worked in that field, uh, in those fields, to find lots of things of archaeological significance. But uh, no, we didn't find the weapon in that one. However, we were working on another case. It was um, a drug dealer case who had unfortunately um, had some other people meet their demise, and he had hired someone to bury them. And so the uh, this burial person eventually confessed, uh, but <clears throat> wasn't really in a state to say exactly where he buried them, so he had a general area. And then we went out with our radar and other techniques, and, and uh, ultimately some of those burials were found. So uh, 
that, that was a more successful outing. <laughs> now, have you been able to actually... Uh, well, obviously, you're doing a fair amount of this work in in, in your own applied scenario, but um, have you been able to apply it to a broad range of forensic types of investigations, not just archaeology, but clearly what you're talking about is crime scene investigations, yeah. uh-huh. and I would imagine that that's the type of a venue and that type of a task that is only going to grow as time goes along and as the techniques in geophysics expand and become more refined, not to mention the ability to interface with information technologies as well. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. We're um, we're working on a case, the Mushki Cemetery. It's a historic cemetery. It's a this is a um, probably a <clears throat> in some ways a happier story for the uh, for the legacy. Uh, it's a historic cemetery north of Houston, and uh, a lot of the graves are now unmarked. And there are some um, well, all the way back uh, prior to the Civil War and and other graves there. And so we've been using a variety of techniques, including uh, LIDAR, which is an exciting new technology uh, to make laser pictures of the surface, and then radar and other techniques to, to try to find the signature of the burials and, um, and identify them so that families can be more assured and understand where their, um, where their, fore, their foreparents were, <clears throat> were buried. So uh, that's a, a cemetery application. Let me ask you this. You are, uh, among all your other tasks, are you doing this under the aegis of the university, or how does that work? I mean, how, how are you currently doing this kind of work as a consultant? Yeah, we, we work uh, in a lot of different ways. And as you know, in, in, the, in the energy world, there's often more support. In the archaeology world, the forensics, it's a little bit uh, leaner. So we, we do most of these under the auspices of the university or with other universities or even um, historical groups who'd say, gee, do you, do you folks have a Saturday where you could come out and help us? <laughs> and so right, we'll right, say, right, right. Sure. And uh, some of my grad students are working on radar, and we're developing processing techniques to make the uh, 3D volumes, the pictures of the subsurface, sharper. And so there's exciting work to be done there, and it's easily transferable back and forth to the resource industry. The same algorithms we use to sharpen pictures of, say, cemetery burials are the same pictures to look at other organics, oil and gas, <laughs> that, are, uh, that are much deeper. Of course, right. But it's basically the same kind <clears throat> of uh, general methodologies and general techniques, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. We... Um, with all of these methods, you have to be located. You have to be well positioned and located. And then we've got to try to make some kind of three-dimensional subsurface picture to pick out shapes and then try to identify what is the composition or the lithology, the rock type or the organic type. So the, uh, the, the concepts are really similar, and we try to teach that to undergrad students. We have field camps. And we use all these techniques um, for undergrads across the, uh, across the nation as well as grad students and, uh, and interfacing with some of the consultants and other users. Now, when you say grad students, are you in a department that is an interdisciplinary department? Do you work with uh, geology people? Do you work with archaeology people? How does, how does that sort out? Yeah, I think that's one of the nice things about some universities, certainly at the University of Houston, we're in an earth and atmospheric department. And so we have geologists, ah, geochemists, okay. 
geophysicists, atmospheric folks, uh, planetary folks. So we're working on everything from um, from meteorites down to um, composition of oils. And so it's, so it's you a get, very get interdisciplinary a department, yeah. Right, you get a conflation of individuals or students who overlap with your technologies, and they must come from at least six or seven different disciplines, I would imagine. Well, they do, and uh, even some of the undergrads are, are really advanced and very um, motivated. We had one fellow who was a paleontologist, and there'd been a surprising uh, discovery, again, near Houston, of, of a mammoth. And so he was handling a lot of the excavation as an undergrad student, really, really mature and um, motivated character. And he involved us to come out and do radar and other surveys to see if we could find the rest of this enormous mammoth. And so that was a great project. And was it successful? Did it work out well? Yeah, we found uh, we found some of the different layers that encased the uh, encased the the bones and and tried to extend that. So it was a nice project. We're still working on it. And we will be back with this very intriguing discussion on geophysics, geophysics, its applications to archaeology, and the intersection of a variety of different disciplines that converge not only on archaeology, but also the environmental sciences, oil and gas exploration. We'll be back with Dr. Stewart after these words. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Are you ready for an Anything Goes hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Thank you. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein with an episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's discussion is with a very fascinating scientist named Dr. Robert Stewart, who is a Ph.D. in geophysics from MIT and is a full professor and the division lead in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Houston. Uh, Dr. Stewart has combined his geophysical expertise with applications in a variety of the environmental sciences and archaeology, specifically linking geology and archaeology and a number of other of venues that he has uh, both explored and pioneered. Uh, Dr. Stewart, let's talk a little bit about the various strategies of uh, geophysical methodologies and how they apply to archaeological situations in particular. I think the one that, that's really sort of the talk of the town, if you will, in archaeological surface, uh, circles these days is LIDAR. Why don't you give us a little bit of background about LIDAR and then branch out into some other remote sensing strategies? Yeah, LiDAR is producing some remarkable pictures. It's uh, basically uh, a laser shooting technique. Probably most of uh, folks have have seen people surveying on roads with a little laser uh, gun or a laser instrument that reflects off um, a crystal, and you can see how far away it is. Now, if you put that together and you move the laser back and forth, you can scan the area and develop um, develop a very nice picture that's actually positioned in space. So it's become a very useful technique for the surface, digital elevation maps, but as well as even character. So uh, that, that really gets a very nice picture of the surface. From there, we've got to match that to location and, and then drape that over other characteristics. So that's the surface, which is really exciting. And then we need to uh, start to look into the subsurface, and that's where other techniques come in. So let's talk about that in particular because everybody is doing LIDAR right now and it's certainly a strategy that can be used remotely what accessibility to many parts of the world is is very difficult. How how does it work and how would you integrate an archaeological exploration project with a LIDAR technique? To what kinds of projects are they most useful? Well, for example, we've... uh I've uh, been working on this Mushki Historic Cemetery, and before looking at the subsurface, we get a very detailed surface map and set up LIDAR, and there are a number of monuments and gravestones and, and other details. So with LIDAR, we'll get a very detailed elevation and character map of the surface, and there you have everything then mapped on the surface in a lot of 3D detail. And with the LiDAR point cloud or the cloud of LiDAR points, you can take things in and out and, and, um, and look at that image. So that gives us the top part, and then it's all referenced with, uh, or this is called geo-referenced, so we know exactly where we can start to look in the subsurface. 
Aha. Uh -huh. So the so LiDAR will give you uh, geo-referenced information and will allow you to reconstruct digital, digital elevation models, what we call DEMs, and that is a, a, a superb surface mapping strategy that will in turn provide sort of a window in, into what you may have and what you may have in the subsurface, right? Well, yeah, and it, it also conserves uh, a state of the surface at the time. When you think about it, we take pictures, but that's just really a 2D, two-dimensional image. With LiDAR, we can have a full three-dimensional image of every monument, every, uh, every structure on the surface and capture that. And, of course, what's on the surface is an indicator of what's beneath it. So now we've got a full volume, a 3D picture of the surface with all of its structures that can be identified and coded and have other layers attached to them. So that's a, that's a wonderful step forward. In full color or anything else that we'd like to uh, drape or attach to the structure and the surface. Let's talk about its applications, though, with respect to specific types of archaeological sites so that, for example, and again, we're talking not just to professionals here, but we want to talk right. to the broader public. So one of the things that uh, is certainly intriguing to people who follow archaeology is that obviously there are different types of complexities associated with archaeological sites for example uh, what we used to call and, and to a large degree still call hunter-gatherer sites very often associated with early time frames like uh, the Paleolithic or even the Neolithic Old Stone Age, New Stone Age those sites are basically very sparse relatively in terms of archaeological remains. We would have hearths, we would have stone tools, we would have bone processing stations, but not much more. And then you know, as we progress through time and sites get more complicated, say, let's say, early early uh, city-states, that kind of thing, um, Egypt, um, um, Sumeria, Mesopotamia, those type of sites leave a much richer archaeological record. Can you tell me uh, to what types of situations LIDAR might be most appropriate and most practical, both in terms of archaeology and environment? Yeah, I, I think it can be pretty much used for all of those. You can imagine setting up um, a tripod and a surveying instrument that captures the, the full three-dimensionality and color of whatever's there. And there may, be, there may be subtleties. There may be subtle elevations, topographic differences. There might be subtle vegetation differences and um, all in elevation. And so if we can capture all of that information, then we can look at it, we can filter it, we can rotate it, run through it. So I would say for virtually any site, the LIDAR would be appropriate to, um, to capture the state of the site and then uh, have a volume picture to do further analysis. So, so I think really anywhere is, as, um, as a first step for any site. What then, about landscapes? Yeah. What about what about landscapes? Uh, more appropriate for desert landscapes. More appropriate for vegetated landscapes. Urban landscapes. What about that? Well, I think um, in in a sense all of them. But if there are obstructions, uh, the lidar techniques are just shooting a laser and it's bouncing back, and you're reconstructing all those little reflections and building a picture. So. Right. If there's a lot of structure, you're going to have to move it, and it's going to be it's going to take a while to construct. <laughs> it's a little bit like a Google car running around uh, with lots of different streets. So, in a in an obstructed site, a forest or something, it'd, it'd be it'd be quite a job to work with lidar. 
well, although you could do it, you just have to patch everything together. So it's a little bit more useful probably for open sites. or Right. We use right. it a lot for even scanning outcrops. That's more of a geologic, but if there was an outcrop uh, or, say, a dinosaur bone coming out of an outcrop, and maybe the outcrop is even inaccessible, you could stand across the river and do a LIDAR scan of the whole face with the bone or something, and... Uh, that could be very useful to understand what age it is, where it is, and then your next steps in trying to excavate. What about, uh, let's talk about some other techniques, uh, remote sensing techniques, uh, uh, satellite imagery, for example, and magnetometer research. What, uh, why don't you walk us through some of the additional <laughs> techniques that are used by archaeologists and by yourself or other venues uh, for these uh, types of applications? Yeah, well, it, uh, the first thing that we're going to try to understand is, of course, what's the target? How big is it? What's the area that we need to look at? Um, what are the properties of the target? And then what are the properties of the host material? And uh, working the way down, of course, if you can do a remote sensing scan, an aerial scan, that can be fairly inexpensive, but uh, might not be as resolved as one wants. <clears throat> then we come down to contact measurements on the surface, and then maybe even some subsurface measurements. We work a lot with uh, ground-penetrating radar, uh, especially in the top two or three meters. Often the um, items of archaeological interest won't be too deep, but will not be apparent on the surface. So GPR, ground-penetrating radar, is a great technique that's often very sharp, and so it's, it's really an appropriate technique for a lot of archaeology and forensics and geotechnology and and engineering. So, You're right, uh, and, and we've used a number of these strategies as well. However, one of the problems that you have with GPR and a variety yes. of these other um, strategies, and, and, and this is something that a lot of regulators uh, often bring up and, and with a fair amount of validity, is that you can you run a very high chance of recording what we call false positives because any disturbance into the substrate can be picked up, especially uh, if the instrumentation that you use is very, very well calibrated so that, for example, in, in many locations where GPR would ostensibly be very helpful, it, it, it almost muddles the picture. And I, I'd like to get your perspective on that because we do a lot of work, for example, in urban settings. And sure. what we would essentially be picking up is old sewer lines, gas utility yeah. <clears throat> lines, fiber optic cables, if, if the resolution is good in a sense, uh, the better the resolution the more difficulties we have because we're picking up so many things that it's very difficult to actually filter out what's important for archaeological purpose, purposes with vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, something that actually obscures it. So how do, how do you deal with that situation? Well, that, that is really true, and, uh, and it's a fact. It, it's a picture of the subsurface. It is capturing that. And in fact, the, the radar or any other technique may capture more what you don't want than what you do want, and, and that's really right. true. <laughs> uh, it's certainly good to capture metal uh, often very well, but uh, organics maybe not very well in the setting. Uh, pebbles and tree roots and things, yeah, will be apparent. So, yeah, that's where the interpretation really, we usually divide these 
the ideas into three parts is the acquisition. There's acquiring the data, the appropriate data. There's processing it. And then there's the tricky part of interpreting it. And so the interpreter has to be well aware of the pitfalls in, in, uh, and, and be familiar with the environment. No, that's actually not a rifle. That's a tree root. And so it, it's true. Uh, we're, we're looking for other things, a bit like the folks in the airport who are uh, looking for untoward objects going through. Uh, what doesn't fit here? Or how do we, what's, what's anomalous? What, what doesn't make sense or, or something like that. So that really is the job of a skilled interpreter. And then, of course, we try to filter out a lot of artifacts that we know uh, are what we're looking for. And, and then and we try really, to pick a technique that, right. that uh, is most appropriate to. Yeah. And that, that's a real problem. And, and I guess that uh, one of the issues that we've had, and we've had this for a long time because remote sensing technology is not new. Uh, it's been around right. for quite a while. Uh, certainly remote imagery is, is, is something that's been around for many decades. The question is, and, and, and this, I, I'd put this to, to you, because, you uh, because of your expertise, I think it's really important for anybody who does this work and anybody that's going to be subcontracted to do this work to in turn ask questions of the person who or the group that would p potentially hire them. And uh, based on that, I think I would make my own decision whether or not I would like this strategy used. And specifically, I'm talking about people who uh, experts like yourself who would ask me the right questions. Well, what kind of an environment are you looking at? And I would say, well, I'm looking at something in midtown Manhattan. And, and I would expect somebody like you to say, you know, hold everything. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. going to be a tough one <laughs> because yeah. we can't guarantee that your GPR or whatever or, or a magnetometer survey is going to pick pick out, um, let's say, an early wooden sewer line or something like that yeah. from, from, a, from, a, from a more recent one. And so you'd have to almost ask a series of questions before you even say, you know what, my strategy is valid, let's go ahead and give it a shot, right? Is that, that's, that is true as well, right? Oh, I, I think you're exactly right on that. The, uh, a lot of these techniques are, require managing expectations, <laughs> Uh, we'd all like to have an X-ray picture of uh, of the subsurface that looks like your hand or something, and none of the techniques can provide that. But uh, what we would try to do is say this technique is probably going to work in the top two meters in an area that doesn't have too much electric, or and then we've got five techniques. And in the resource industry or forensics or geotechnical or archaeological, it's really a case of overlying indicators. Right. I've got five measurements. I've got five uh, signatures. And, you know, when I get all five of those, that's a pretty good shot. But, or in this case, you're not going to get any of them. The, the environment just is not going to support anything we can do. We're sorry. You know, we, we can't cure that form of cancer yet. Um, but, uh, and that's where I think experience does come along, too, where all the methods have limitations and areas where they're appropriate, and of course not. GPR is probably appropriate for the first top couple meters. Uh, microgravity may find something if it's big enough and shallow enough, and, and those are little ways. In the oil industry, we use modeling a lot, and that's one way, uh, that's part and parcel. The uh, a client would say, I've got this structure at this depth with these characteristics, and we say, okay, we'll simulate a survey with whatever you want, 
We'll get the simulated, the computer model data, we'll process it, we'll make a picture out of it, and we'll see if it works. And that's really become pretty mainstream because the surveys on the large scale in the oil industry are so expensive that nobody would really go out and do a marine survey in the Gulf of Mexico or the Mid-Atlantic or something unless you knew that the survey design and survey technique was going to be adequate to image the target. (laughs) Of course, yeah. And so computer simulations uh, for all these techniques are really, really useful. And you can come back and say, gee, you know, with a certain... This technique, uh, we're probably going to be able to image that and see it. Or, you know what, we're sorry. We don't have a hope of seeing that in this environment. And you'd have to be very candid about that, obviously. Yeah. And and if the users or the client is, uh, you know, a professional, and that's a lot of organizations have someone like that, they they know the technologies and and we review patents and we review proposals and we've got a pretty good idea of whether this is going to work or not. Sure, sure. And we'll be back with our very fascinating discussion on geophysics and its applications to archaeology and misapplications in some cases in archaeology right after these words. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Can you dig it? 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 Can
You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Dr. Robert Stewart holds a, a bachelor in a bachelor's degree in physics and eventually became a PhD in geophysics at the at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and as we have said before he is the division lead in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Houston since 2008. We have been talking about various geophysical strategies and techniques in archaeology, and uh, Dr. Stewart has uh, explored and utilized many of these strategies in many different parts of the world. And I'd like to ask you, uh, Bob, if, if you would, to give us some examples of where various geophysical techniques have proven to be very worthwhile, not just in pure archaeology, but also in an applied settings uh, today, which, uh, which would draw attention to previous settings that might have been subject to different environmental forces in the past as well. Can you give us some examples of, of where you've applied these strategies and what strategies they were in the recent past? Well, I think, uh, as we mentioned, a lot of the use of geophysics is really to support other activities, such as archaeology. For example, in Belize, there are several hundred structures, uh, mainly in the jungle, and most of them are overgrown, of, of this wonderful, flourishing, classical Maya civilization. And only a very few of those structures have actually been excavated, and it's a very difficult task that's expensive and, and months-consuming and people getting a couple square meters and spending their summer down there. <laughs> so where geophysics can help is, uh, is to be non-invasive, uh, fairly rapid, and then non-destructive. So we've been surveying some of the, uh, the monolithic, these enormous structures, to see if there's anything unusual in them. And, uh, and we're doing, for example, seismic, uh, seismic tomography around pyramids. Mm-hmm. And the, the goal is to see is there anything that looks interesting inside this with actually, without cutting it or excavating it. Now, sadly, a lot of the bigger structures have been intruded, but we'd li- even like to know where the, uh, where the uh, unauthorized excavators, where did they go and where the, did they not go? And so we can start to make pictures of that, and we've been putting belts of seismic sensors around the pyramids and just tapping on them as, as a physician would on your chest with a stethoscope <clears throat> and trying to see if there's uh, something interesting inside right. or whether it's, uh, it's probably just um, a fairly common structure that should not be excavated. Don't spend the next 20 years on that one. <laughs> Right, right. And and I guess one of the side benefits of what you're doing is you can understand the mind of the looter. I mean, what are they looking for and how they go about doing these and maybe even reconstructing looting events, which are probably very important in this day and age when uh, some of the major treasures in the world are getting demolished by acts of war. Well, they are, and, and going back to our previous idea of, of capturing in 3D with LiDAR and other techniques, some of these priceless uh, art uh, pieces of, of work that may have been destroyed. But um, certainly with the, these big monolithic structures, many of them have been looted, 
but the looters didn't necessarily find the goodies either. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the laws are very strict in Belize and other countries about recovering artifacts. But, but seismic ground and radar and, uh, and microgravity, these are all great techniques that are completely non-invasive and non-destructive. To, uh, to see if there are cavities inside the structures or, uh, or even to start to image the walls. For example, a lot of the pyramids in, in the Maya world were built over many centuries and built on top of previous structures. And so we're trying to, in a sense, take away the outer parts with the image and find how the structure evolved over maybe several hundred years. And you start to see rooms inside, etc. Uh, one of the points that you had made during the break, and I think this is very fa- fascinating as well, is that you had been uh, involved in the reconstruction and the search for the fault that produced the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. And I think one of the lessons that we might have uh, for, as archaeologists, of course, it's sort of dwarfed by the reality of uh, of the catastrophe in Haiti, is that we could probably actually reconstruct the timeline and the mechanisms that are account for natural disasters in the past. For example, um, earthquakes that would have occurred on, along the Syro-African Fault, which was an area where lots of uh, cultural remains associated with early hominids and subsequently with uh, later civilizations occurred, and you might be able to reconstruct those events and why those catastrophes and disasters happen based on your kind of techniques. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how uh, your experience in Haiti taught you what that catastrophe was like and what triggered it? Well, it's true that uh, paleo seismology and uh, and the, the techniques to try to recover from uh, from the subsurface, from the geologic or a geologic picture, that can tell us a lot, certainly about what was the consequence of an event like that. Earthquakes in the Holy Land have probably been uh, absolutely key in developing a lot of how history unfolded, the Maya case too. In Haiti in 2010, of course, there was that massive devastating earthquake uh, there, it's on a plate boundary. Haiti is, is on a plate boundary between North America and the Caribbean plate. And so uh, naturally it was thought that the earthquake would be right on this boundary. On, but it, it turns out that it wasn't. And so it's being called what's uh, labeled as a blind fault. In other words, the rupture area was, did not express to the surface. So it's a big mystery of exactly how, what was the structure and the tectonics of that earthquake. Now, where it becomes important is, will this kind of event happen again? Where, why, how big? And so what we're doing in Haiti is attempting to do subsurface imaging to find the fault. So it's a search for the fault. So you are basically saying here that uh, you don't really know why that happened, but that you are exploring the possibilities by more detailed mapping to see whether or not you could get to the underlying mechanisms based on higher resolution imagery. Exactly. Um, That's exactly it. So while trying to have a humanitarian purpose of helping Haiti redevelop its its infrastructure and its especially its technical infrastructure. To our knowledge, there have been no surveys, no seismic surveys, reflection surveys that are our best way to see deep in the earth. There have been none done in Haiti. 
So this is a real call to help us go down there and help them. Uh, so there's no real high-resolution picture of the area that faulted the epicenter and the hypocentral area. And consequently, we don't really know the mechanics of what caused that enormous event. And uh, Yeah, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So this is... This is a, a big puzzle. Where was the rupture? It didn't come to the surface. Where was it? It wasn't on the, the huge transform fault. Um, so where was it? Uh, what kind of rupture is it? Um, and then looking at it kind of archaeologically, there are other areas where we are looking at high-resolution um, images in the lakes and trying to reconstruct the paleo history. Uh, there have been many events, and, and what seismologists try to do is say, look, we had a... We had a magnitude 7.2 in 1700. We had another repeat event in 1820. And now we had one at this other time. We're building up the statistics to what we can expect. And so that's really the, the paleo idea, the historical reconstruction. And that helps say, gee, this is, a, this is prone to a one-in-a-hundred-year event. It should be zoned this way. You should build buildings like this. And so that's the, the kind of historical view that we try to extract from these other measurements. Let me ask you another question because, it, as we had discussed before, one of the drawbacks of using uh, many of these strategies, many of the remote sensing strategies, is the fact that circumstances have to be just right for a 100% uh, maximum utilization, if you want to call it that, a cost benefit uh, utilization. Uh, you you really have to have the appropriate circumstances. Otherwise, it, it, you know, it's it's almost counterintuitive. But the more refined your techniques are, the more problems you're going to get because you're going to pick up so many ancillary uh, signatures in the subsurface or the surface that will actually confound the interpretations that you were asked to generate. My question to you is: Are we going to get to the point where the resolution? on these techniques and, and the perfection and refinement of these techniques will be such that you will be able to actually pick out specific disturbances. In other words, you'll be able to take, you'll be able to isolate a certain type of stone from another type of stone or a certain kind of uh, disturbance in the ground from another one and say, okay, I think we have enough resolution here to actually reconstruct the individual properties of a particular disturbance. Are we going to get to that point eventually? Well, I, I think I think we're there in some cases and and we're very hopeful that within certain limitations we will get there. For example, the oil industry now uses three-dimensional seismic surveying that just gives shockingly good subsurface pictures. We can pick out faults. We do what's called seismic inversion, and we, we get an estimate of rock properties, rock type, even pore saturants, what's, what's in there. So mm -hmm. if you spend enough money, uh, you can get a pretty darn good picture in many, many areas. Right. Uh, likewise, the, uh, with, this, um, with all the stimulated... Uh, reservoir work going on, hydro hydraulic fracturing, uh, these events are being monitored, and the industry has just uh, increased massively, and we're learning so much about what, how can we characterize subsurface events. So this is an area where I see cross-fertilization with all the uh, effort that's gone into micro-seismic monitoring, hydraulic fracture monitoring. We're learning so much about how rocks break 
that I think that's going to go back to the big earthquake world and help us understand major events from these micro micro events, the technology around it, the imaging. So I think it's very it's looking pretty good. We we won't get down to um, laser like precision six miles underneath the earth, but we're, <laughs> we we're doing better and better all the time in making those pictures. And, and that really calls attention to a lot of a lot of issues that I think many of us are going to have to deal with. Um, certainly, uh, one of one of the uh, issues that that I think is really critical here is the convergence of uh, the types of uh, remote sensing technologies that really, to some degree, to a large degree, are being piped. Uh, developed by the oil and gas industry converge with with archaeology and as i had mentioned to you before and, and you obviously knew this oil and gas really is the major funder of archaeology in uh, certainly the united states and much of north america and i think that bringing together the techniques of that industry with the preservation community is one of the strategies that is really a very positive development that might uh, sort of mutually enrich oil exploration and uh, and historic preservation do you see that as a possibility going forward Oh, definitely. I think one great example is the earthquake community, which uh, with the U.S. Geologic Survey and, and lots of other folks, was really very separated from the exploration geophysics community, the folks looking for energy resources and other resources. But hydraulic fracturing has really brought those two communities together because the fracture, the break of a rock is, is a, a mini earthquake. Mm -hmm. And the earthquake guys know all about how rocks break, and the exploration guys know all about how to put a lot of instruments down and make a picture of it. <laughs> so it's been a great convergence. Uh, and one other thing I would say is you brought up a great point uh, about more questions being brought forward than answers, and that's always troubled me. But here's a little model for you. Mm -hmm. I think of, of what we know as a disk inside a circle. And what we don't know is outside the circle. And the more we know, the bigger the circumference gets. So if we say that questions are the circumference and knowledge is the area, the more you know, it generates more questions. The good thing That's is true. area gets yeah. bigger faster than questions do. So there are more questions, but relatively we're making progress. <laughs> and you see this as something going forward that, uh, say, in the, and these, these progress, these timelines for progress seem to tighten up more and more. I mean, uh, methodological advances certainly have accelerated over the past decade, and I think uh, the future indicates that they will only accelerate more as time goes forward. So I would say there would probably, and I hope you, you would verify this, that there's hope for a lot of optimism going forward in terms of the resolution capacity uh, in, in, in high-tech uh, exploration. Oh, there, there really is, and, and in fact, it's really a fact, because we can put down many, many more sensors now. So computers are much faster. We've got more channels, more streams of information that we can, uh, we can measure and then process. So, for example, in the oil industry, uh, we often say used 96 sensors. Mm -hmm. Now we're using 100,000 sensors. And so the picture you can make with 100,000 measurements is 
much, much better than what you can make with 96 measurements, for example. Of course. And then what order of magnitude. Order many, of mag- many order of magnitudes, it's true. And so the pictures are definitely getting better. And uh, what we can do with them and how we can interpret them and how we can overlay them and, and the different measurements, oh, it, it's going ahead very, very fast. And even with, we were chatting earlier about drones and other uh, instruments that we could put in places where we couldn't before. So, for example, in Haiti, if we had, if we'd been able to put sensors all over the area, unmanned sensors, because it's a disaster zone, but if we could fly in sensors and put them around, we could have recorded aftershocks right there. Wow. And we would have much, a much better idea of what had happened. In the future, and we're experimenting with this right now, but in the future we could potentially do things like that. So acquisition is increasing remarkably um, with optical sensors, drones, all kinds of things. Processing machines are going much faster, and how we visualize and interpret is, is improving Amazingly, too. Well, I want to thank Dr. Robert R. Stewart of the University of Houston for his unique insights into the world of geophysics in both environmental science and in archaeology in our own domain. I want to thank you so much for being part of the program. Thanks, Dr. Stewart. Oh, wonderful to have visited with you. Thank you. And we will be back with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology next week. Thank you and stay well. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.